Welcome to another edition of Ecumenical Musings, where we look at developments in the ecumenical world in Australia and other parts of the world. I'm Richard Tewton, and it's a pleasure to be with you once more. In this episode, our focus is on a meal that is important to Christians, but unfortunately cannot be shared by everyone. Imagine being invited to a friend's house for dinner. While during this COVID era it doesn't happen as often as we would like, it is still able to be done. On arrival at your friend's residence, you are warmly welcomed and offered a drink and some appetizers. As you talk with your hosts, the smells from the kitchen are inviting. You are looking forward to the meal. However, when it is served, you are not invited to the table. In fact, you find that you are unable to have any of it. You are invited to stay and chat while your host eats the meal, but you cannot eat with them. How would you respond to this intriguing insult? Would you stay or go? After all, you've been invited to a meal and you came with the expectation of enjoying it. How would you respond? While you are thinking about your response to this scenario, let's imagine a further development. A relative of your host arrives during the eating of the meal, the one you cannot enjoy. This person is warmly greeted as you were, but instead of being invited to simply sit and chat while your host enjoys the meal on the table, your host's relative is invited to sit down and a portion of the meal is placed before them along with the invitation to eat and enjoy it. How would you feel then? Would it be enough to have you leave the house angry and upset? Or would you accept the situation because you don't wish to upset your hosts who invited you to come in the first place? You may think that I'm sounding a little far-fetched in developing this scenario. It is a bit over the top in many ways. After all, who would invite someone to a meal at their house and then not allow their guest to eat the meal, but invite them to still stay and chat while the meal is being eaten? I did see a story recently in social media about three boys who went together to a fast food restaurant and bought one meal. Two of the boys then sat while watching their friend eat, until a kind soul shouted the other to a meal and a drink each. Yet similar scenarios to the one I have outlined have been played out in churches for over 500 years. People have been invited to the most important meal a church can offer. They have been welcomed, invited to participate in prayers and singing, and have listened to the sermon or homily. But when it comes time to share in the sacred meal itself, they are not allowed for various reasons. They are, though, allowed to join the congregation for morning tea after the service. There seems to be reasons for this limited form of hospitality. I would like to say that it is a thing of the past, and thankfully in some places it is. However, it is still happening in many places today, and even with COVID restrictions, is done on a regular basis. The meal in question is the Eucharist, though in some churches it goes by various names such as Holy Communion, the Lord's Supper, the Mass and the Divine Liturgy. Some churches celebrate it on a daily or weekly basis, while others have it less frequently. There are churches that do not have it at all, preferring to only have prayer and praise services that include a sermon or homily. The point of this episode is not to go over the history of the Eucharist, 
but to muse on the way in which it has been treated over the centuries. It goes without saying that the churches who celebrate it regard it as being very important. It is, along with baptism, one of the two sacraments ordained by Jesus in the Gospels. The churches receive the Eucharist as a gift from Jesus. The concept of it being a gift from Jesus to humanity is further developed by St Paul, who wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23-25, to 25, that he had received that which he passed on to the church communities. The reception of what Jesus had done at the meal on the night before he was betrayed and arrested has been passed down through the centuries without any variation. This demonstrates the importance of the Eucharist in the life of the churches. So why withhold it, or more to the point, decide who can have it and who cannot? Many reasons have emerged and given over the centuries. I say centuries because some issues have been active since the time of the early church, and later as the church developed its liturgies and doctrines. The result has been a lot of discussion, argument, debate, and occasionally violence, as churches have de decided who can and who cannot receive the Eucharist. Withholding the sacraments has been used from time to time as a weapon by various church leaders. It has been done to demonstrate power, but also as a means to bring some form of doctrinal uniformity to the broad life of the church as a whole. After all, the thinking goes, if everyone is on the same page doctrinally, then the unity of the church is assured and can be seen by everyone. Unfortunately, this has not been the case. Since its infancy, the church has been a diverse creature. Different communities in various places were and are made up of a wide range of people whose personalities and cultural backgrounds have seen things, including the person and work of Jesus, in a variety of ways. This has been true of the different books and letters that were used by communities during their gatherings. Some made it into the list of what Christians called the Old and New Testaments. Others did not make the cut, even though they were considered very popular and had been used by church communities for a couple of hundred years. In regard to the Eucharist or Lord's Supper, similar variations, except for what had been called the words of institution that recount what Jesus did during the Last Supper, also occur. These variations reflected many things, including the cultural life of the community, previous religious expressions, and the influence of Judaism, which, after all, is from where Christianity had originally sprung. As the Church continued to develop and evolve its structures and governance, there arose a need by some to unify the system, especially when it came to significant areas such as doctrine, the scriptures, and the sacraments. This did not mean that everyone agreed with this movement toward a more organised and at times centralised approach. Quite the opposite. As we peruse the pages of early church history, we can find many instances of church leaders objecting to particular proposals and others wanting their views to be endorsed above everyone else's. Going to a big church gathering such as a synod was a very risky undertaking. It is worth reflecting on the work that was achieved during this often tumultuous period. Much of that work still guides churches in the 21st century. 
I said earlier that denying church members the Eucharist has often been used as a weapon. This was certainly the case during this early period. While it often had the effect that was intended, there were those who felt so totally excluded that they just went off and did their own thing outside of the main church structures of that time. Both eastern and western parts of the church gradually grew apart as well. This was due to political and social changes that occurred in many, if not all, societies. Ceremonies and liturgies changed their look and format, depending on which part of the old Roman Empire they were being celebrated or observed. In the end, the two very distinct arms of the one church could not live with each other. Neither could get the upper hand over the other. In essence, they divorced when the Great Schism occurred in 1054. Neither side talked to each other for many centuries. This meant that even though there may have been members of the Eastern Church travelling in the western part of the old empire, they were not allowed to participate in worship or receive communion because their baptism was no longer recognised. This was true when people travelled from, say, Rome to the eastern capital of Constantinople. They were rejected by the Eastern Church. What was once one church with diverse features was now split with two very different forms of church that no longer spoke to each other, at least on an official level. Though it is not recorded, I believe that there is no doubt people from both sides of the argumentative fence did correspond and kept contact with friends, colleagues and family members who had unfortunately been caught up through no fault of their own in the whole situation. You would think that a split of this magnitude would provide a few lessons on how not to proceed when discussions and debates on matters of theology and practice reached straining point. Unfortunately, this was not to be, for in the 16th century, when parts of the Western Church flexed their theological muscles, along with some political backing from European rulers who wanted to be free of the Holy Roman Empire and its royal incumbent, the reaction of the Roman Catholic Church, as the Western Church had become known, was like history repeating itself, when groups that began what has been called the Reformation started to move away liturgically and theologically from the more centralised church that had the Pope as its head. This included the Church of England, that is separated from the Pope's jurisdiction, but initially not its theology or liturgy, when Henry VIII wanted both his marriage to Catherine of Aragon annulled and the right to appoint bishops to the diocese of his realm. Again, people who strayed from the central church line were excluded. Some even excluded themselves because they found what they regarded as more congenial ways of expressing their church life. What was once a more unified church had become in a few centuries very divided. This put fear into the hearts and minds of Christians. They were afraid to fraternise with members of churches other than their own in case they were seen to be too friendly and were punished accordingly. As well, depending on which strand of the Christian church was the more powerful in a country or area, Members of different churches were caught, brought to trial, and often executed for their faith and beliefs. Every side, and there were and are many in the end, thought that they were the one true church. Each one thought that the others were straying from the one true faith. It wasn't a pleasant sight, and in many ways still isn't for a lot of people. 
The outward perception of churches to many in society is one of division and fractured thinking. It is sad to sit in a congregation as a visitor and not be allowed to receive communion when attending a Eucharist. I know, I've done it many times. There is also the thought that if I do, I will either be refused by the priest or minister of the church I am attending, or I will be reported to the leaders of my own church for crossing a line that should be avoided. Having said that, I should also say that I have received communion in some churches that are not in communion with my own church, because they have graciously invited me to do so. As one church leader put it to me, we offer an open table here. For the ecumenical movement, the Eucharist is still a tough nut to crack. Some churches, as they dialogue with each other, have found that their theological differences regarding the Eucharist are not as far apart as first imagined. Consequently, they have offered Eucharistic hospitality to each other. This has led to the development of closer relationships being fostered and encouraged. Unfortunately, there are many churches who are willing to dialogue and do things with other churches, but draw the line at celebrating the Eucharist with them. As I said earlier, they are happy to receive visitors, but don't go as far as offering the special hospitality that comes with being able to celebrate the Eucharist together. In 1985, the World Council of Churches Faith and Order Commissioned developed an ecumenical Eucharistic liturgy that has become known as the Lima document after the city in which the commission met while it worked on that particular project. Though copies are available, few churches, if any, have allowed themselves to actually use it. It seemed like a bridge too far. Will we reach a point as churches where the differences give way and a more positive view of each other allows them to move into a deeper relationship that heeds the call of Jesus that they may be one? After all, if that did happen, then who knows what might occur as we put God's call for unity into action. The Eucharist is a sacrament, a gift which God offers us through the power of the Holy Spirit. In eating and drinking of the bread and wine, we express our communion with God in an intimate and real way. It is a pity that, at the moment, we cannot do so as fully as we would like. It is an area of church life that needs more intense effort if God's call for unity is to be totally fulfilled. Thanks for listening to this edition of Ecumenical Musings. You may not agree with everything I have mused on, but I hope it has given you more food for thought on this important topic. I'm Richard Tewton and I look forward to your company on another occasion.